Я хочу розказати вам про наші 13 днів міцної війни, яку ми не розпочинали і не хотіли. Всі прокинулись, ми, діти, всі ми, живі люди, вся Україна. Scenes of mass graves and civilians shot execution style have indelibly burned the once quiet Kyiv suburb of Bucha into the world's collective consciousness. Just as Srebrenica was once just a small Bosnian city until it became the infamous site of a massacre, Bucha will forever be known as the scene of mass murder and apparent war crimes. And it's also a harbinger. We still don't know what horrors and atrocities have been committed and are still to be discovered in other areas of Ukraine controlled by Vladimir Putin's marauding war machine, from the southern city of Kherson to the suburbs of Kharkiv, Mykolaiv, and Mariupol. But for the moment, Bucha is the horrific symbol of Russian atrocities in Ukraine, and it has changed the conversation about Putin's war of aggression against Ukraine, how it might end, and how to hold its perpetrators accountable. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Dallas, Texas, is David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Eurasian and European Affairs, uh, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, and Russia and Ukraine. These days, David serves as the Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome back to The Vertical, David, your first one from the great state of Texas. Thanks very much, Brian. Good to be with you again. Good to have you. And joining us from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city of Vilnius is my old friend Konstantin Egert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and the former director of the BBC's Russian service. Welcome back, Kostya. It's always great to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So uh, the terms watershed, tipping point, and game changer are often overused. But I can't help but think of the horrors the world has witnessed this past week from Bucha have irrevocably changed the way we view the war and the Putin regime, even for those among us who never really had any illusions about this regime, of course, present company included. Um, It raises questions like, can we or the Ukrainians even negotiate or engage with a regime that is responsible for such atrocities? And if not, how does this war end? Can the world hold Putin accountable? And if so, how? Uh, David, what are your top line reactions to what we learned this week? What we have seen in the images from Bucha, Brian, I think certainly uh, are are scarring all of us, our conscience. Uh, They are incredibly difficult to see and to watch. But uh, let's not forget, and I know the three of us don't, that this is not the first time Putin has engaged in these kinds of actions. He came to power through utter brutality by invading Chechnya, leveling Grozny, and killing and injuring tens of thousands of Chechens, Russia's own citizens. Uh, and then, of course, with Russia's military invention, intervention starting in 2015 in Syria and the bombing of Aleppo. This, sadly, is par for the course, but I think what we are seeing is more immediate, more graphic, um, and it is resonating more with the international community. Um, I, I think this does complicate any efforts to negotiate with the Russian side to the extent that the Russian side was serious about negotiations. And to be honest with you, I don't think they are. Nor did negotiations I. are usually a stalling tactic on the part of the Russians. They never like to reach closure and, and agreement on something. And I have not detected any sense, at least listening to the comments from Putin and Peskov and others in the immediate circle, to indicate that the Russian side is is serious about negotiations. Um, President Zelensky, I think, is, is the person we need to follow. Whatever he decides is possible politically is what we should support. We should not second guess him, whatever it is he decides. And if he feels that uh, putting an end to this terrible suffering that the Ukrainian people are, are feeling, we should support that if he feels that the Ukrainians need to continue to push back, even go on the on the offense. We should support him in that. We should continue to arm the Ukrainians as much as possible. 
so that they are in the strongest position to defend themselves. Kostya, your thoughts? Well, I would follow up on what David said, and I think that uh, actually Zelensky is in a very bad position because he's a democratically elected president uh, who cares about his own people. And this is a weakness that Putin, Putin's eyes, that's a weakness that can be exploited uh, during the negotiations. And I suppose that uh, this is what holds Zelensky back to some extent. And you, you remember when a few days ago, probably a week ago, two weeks ago, he said that any agreements with the Russians will be put uh, to a referendum. Mm-hmm. That was his probably way of saying, hold on, I understand that anything you sign with Putin is not even worth the paper it will be signed on. And uh, that is, a, I think it's actually Zelensky's tragedy, which uh, goes up to kind of Faustian, uh, kind of Goethe-like uh, mm-hmm. uh, levels, because uh, he has to stop the bloodshed, but the price he may pay for stopping this bloodshed could be so exorbitant that in some ways, and I'm really, really sad to say that, in some ways continuing the fight may look like a better option because for Putin, it's evidently uh, Mm -hmm. a project of a lifetime. Uh, And even if he wasn't, uh, and we're probably going to talk about it later, uh, a kind of um, the the depths of national psyche he uncorked during these few weeks are such that he won't be, I think he won't be able to stop it even if he wanted to. So anything he signs with Ukraine will be just a pause, will be a provisional piece of paper, uh, and he'll have to basically go back to to, 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 to fighting, to, to waging a war, prosecuting a war uh, sometime later. Yeah, no, and Kostya, I do want to drill a little deeper into that going forward about kind of the paradoxes of any kind of negotiation going forward. But I wanted to stick with you for a moment, Kostya, because, I mean, we've all seen the absurd official reaction from Russia to Bucha. Um, I watched the UN ambassador's remarks this week, and even, I mean, let's face it, I mean, even even for Russia, this was a little bit bonkers. Um, and I've seen the, the the reactions of others. But Kostya, you keep close tabs on 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 Russia and on Russian public opinion and Russian people. How are ordinary Russians reacting to this? Are, are they believing the absurd Russian claims that this is either staged with crisis actors or it was some Ukrainian Nazis that that, that, that committed these atrocities. Um, there were reports on Russian TV this just this week that they are plan- that the Ukrainian Nazis are planning other attacks in this in, in, in other areas that Russia just oh so happens to be withdrawing from. How is this playing in Russia? It's a great question because no one knows the exact answer. In such a regime, you can never figure out what essentially is happening uh, in public opinion. Uh, And I will tell you my suspicion, having traveled quite widely in Russia, actually from Vladivostok to Kaliningrad in the last few years, and my suspicion is that this is actually a Russian tragedy too, strange as it may sound, uh, against the backdrop of Ukrainian uh, suffering. But it is a tragedy in some ways of much larger proportion, because my suspicion is that the majority of Russians do not believe Putin so much as they choose to believe him, which is a very subtle but important difference, Mm. which means that a lot of people suspect that things are probably not going right, but they are A, afraid of the government, and B, they choose to imitate belief. They choose to convince themselves what they believe because another choice is horrible. And that means taking, this choice means taking responsibility for our own life, standing up to the government, saying you are liars. And this is something that an average Russian person is incapable of doing. And I think that this is, uh, th- th- what we have, we have a blind public opinion, which follows the leader because it willingly relinquishes its civic responsibilities actually is thinking. And I see that David wants to say something, but I think an important thing here is that uh, about a few days ago, I think two, three days ago, uh, they had a poll conducted 
with a completely different question. Uh, do you feel confident? What do you feel about Russia's future? I think it was like, it was like that. And answers were invariably fear, anxiety, pessimism, and stuff like that. I mean, not a lot of people are very optimistic about Russia's future against the backdrop of this seemingly victorious campaign, if you look at the Russian media and if you follow the public opinion polls. So I think it is a nationalist psyche that is so disfigured that it is, to some extent, I'm starting to be very pessimistic about it. I'm not sure it is actually, it actually is, um, it actually is, you can save it. Yeah, I know Timothy Snyder had a piece in the Washington Post, the Yale historian, the great Yale historian Timothy Snyder had a piece in the Washington Post this week arguing that in, in attempting to destroy Ukraine, Putin is destroying Russia. Um, and I was looking at the, the latest Levada poll, so it shows that 85% of Russians, and Levada is the most credible pollster in, in Russia, if not the only credible pollster in Russia, so 85% support support the war. David, you wanted to jump in with a comment here. Well, just to pick up on what Kostya was saying, because I think it's critically important, and I would actually date what he has described about this choosing to believe, goes back to 99, where mm -hmm. I think for a lot of Russians who did wonder about those apartment bombings, it is too much to stomach the idea that elements of the government could possibly be involved and complicit in, in bombing their own people. And so I, I, this goes back to the origins of Putin and Putinism, yeah. where, where I think he, he created this phenomenon where people decide to believe in him because the alternative, even if they actually think the alternative has some plausibility, is just so difficult to comprehend yeah. and come to grips with. And so I, I think Kostya has absolutely put his finger on a critical element of this. I, I, it is, we all know, and, and your listeners know, Doing surveys in Russia in quote unquote normal times is, is difficult. It's hard to uh, take it total face value. You're absolutely right. Lovada is the most respectable one out there. But I think doing a survey these days is especially difficult. Um, I, I know one lead, I won't name him because I, I can't remember if it was fully open to the public, but one leading sociologist said uh, early this week, in fact, that. Uh, the the refusal rate, i.e., that the Russians' uh, unwillingness to respond to mm. a, a pollster, has not changed. That people are still willing, in the same percentage terms, to give a response to a pollster making an inquiry. Um, but I, I do think that the sense that they have to give the answer that needs to be given is mm -hmm. greater than it was before, just because there is greater fear. Ten to fifteen year jail sentence, if you use the words war and invasion. Um, they are instilling greater and greater fear. I think we are now talking about a system that is totalitarian in nature. Yeah, no, Putin's dangerously moving towards going going full Stalinist. And David, I, I mean, I, I was in Moscow for the 1999 apartment bombings. Um, it was it was terrifying. Um, it was terrifying. Um, and I remember talking to my Russian friends, and it was patently obvious to everybody in Moscow what was going on. But my Russian friends had a hard time. Uh, Coming to grips with that, sure. and that th th their government would bomb their own citizens while they slept um, in Moscow. Um, I wanted to kind of pick up on this notion of what a turning point Bucha is. Um, in that setting, Bucha is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, wait till we see what's going on in Mariupol. I mean, you're hearing reports of mobile crematoriums that Russia is using to destroy the evidence. Uh, of war crimes. We have reports of credible reports of rapes. We have credible reports of tens of thousands of Ukrainian citizens being taken to either filtration camps in Russian occupied areas of the Donbass or into Russia proper. These are Ukrainian citizens. And when now, if there's any pressure on Zelensky to, to go for a land for peace deal, well, it's not just land for peace, it's people for peace, it's citizens for peace. And the thing I'm, I mean, I'm kind of, I have two things I want to touch on here. In the micro sense, I mean, the, 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 how this complicates any kind of peace negotiation. I mean, I don't think Zelensky can give up one inch of territory because he's, he's, what, what, what he would be doing is condemning his own citizens to death effectively, possibly. Um, that's, that's one thing. And then the larger point is something I've been thinking about is when this is over. What is the price of readmission of Russia back into polite society, or if, if for, for lack of a better term, or if that is even possible, 
with Putin in power? Is Putin now in Kim Jong-un uh, Jong territory or in, in Bashar al-Assad territory or in Muammar Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein territory? Is he in this territory of a leader with whom we just can't talk to? Um, so I kind of, if you both of your thoughts on those two questions, one's kind of micro about how to end this war and how it complicates it. But the other one is the, the bigger picture of Russia's role in the world. Should Putin stay in power? Um, David, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, look, again, as I said at the outset, I think we, we have to be driven by what Zelensky decides to do. Uh, as Kostya said, he is the popularly elected, democratically elected leader with 72% of the vote in 2019. He has done a heroic job in leading his country through this incredibly difficult period. And I think he is the best position to decide what is in the best interest of his country. And so we should follow his lead. And if he asks for more military assistance, we absolutely should be providing it without any hesitation whatsoever. If he wants backing for a negotiation process, as, as difficult as that may be to envision how that plays out, we should also support him in that, I believe. They're the ones doing the fighting. They're the ones who are dying mm. on the front line. And I think it would be borderline disgraceful if we started second guessing and doubting uh, his decisions. Not to say that everything he does will be perfect and infallible, but he's the one I think who has to set this agenda on Putin. Um, I, yes, I think he is a Kim Jong-un category or, or Bashar al-Assad. Um, he has been sanctioned. He is one of the few leaders in the world who has been sanctioned by not just the United States, but the international community. And so his daughters have just been sanctioned yesterday. Um, I, I don't see how we return to any sense of normalcy, any back to business with Russia as long as Putin is in power. And, and this is why I wasn't particularly upset with President Biden's comment when he said, for God's sakes, how can this, uh, we can't let this man remain I was delighted. I was delighted with that comment. <laughs> yeah, I was. I, I mean, he wasn't saying our policy is regime change. He was simply expressing a view that how, how could the world live? How could Russia live with this man still in power? And, and I think that is a, an important signal to send to any of our allies who might have it either in the front or the back of their minds that when this dust settles, whenever that might be, or however that looks like, that we can get back to normal. We cannot. We cannot. Yeah, and you, David, you were in government after the during and after the Russian invasion of Georgia, and we, it was it was actually shocking to me how quickly we went back to business. Less as than a year, a reset policy year. that happened in August, as you know, and and you know February, January, February of the next year, we were talking about reset. Yeah, Costa, your thoughts both on the micro issue of of negotiating an end to this war and, and, and with how how it's complicated by all this, and the larger question of. Putin and Russia's role in the world when the, when the dust settles from this? Well, on the not so micro actually issue of ending this war, well, I think that it depends on your respect on your horizon. For Putin, the nearest sort of deadline is V-Day, 9th of May, mm -hmm. when he's supposed to stand on the Red Square and say something about the great victory he achieved. So I suppose that because we still have a month, uh, what we'll have, we'll have desperate uh, attempts to secure Mariupol and secure the land bridge between the Crimea and Russia. That can be presented as kind of, we finally save the Crimea from the so-called Nazi. Uh, secondly, I think uh, maybe announcement of incorporation of the two so-called republics of Donetsk and Luhansk plus maybe South Ossetia, well, we're talking about Georgia and 2008, mm. um, maybe in the making. I don't think they'll be able to organize a referendum in such a short time. Although, I mean, maybe they could. We know they're organized. In a oh, they just write the results in the back of a napkin. Yeah, they can, yeah, they yeah, can yeah, do a referendum in a minute. <laughs> I don't think they're going to do it as soon as, but I think that it may be announced that uh, then Russia will grow in territory. So these are the the limits the closest possibilities. But if you're looking forward, no, Putin will not be satisfied uh, with what uh, he achieved or rather not achieved. Uh, and if there is a kind of peace deal, which basically I agree, I don't, I don't understand how, I understand that Zelensky has, be, uh, has to take the decision. He is the ultimate decision taker. But 
um, what kind of decision he can take that will be all right for Ukraine, because nothing Putin signs can never be believed. And I think that Putin will see any kind of deal that, for example, Zelensky chooses to sign with him as um, a lull, as um, a kind of uh, restocking time. And uh, that, by the way, goes uh, links me to your second question, because uh, actually I'm not that um, I'm not that pessimistic or optimistic, depends on how you look at it, uh, about Putin's fate. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you why. Uh, I'm not saying that it's going to go back to you know the reset and uh, uh, the kind of post-Georgia uh, type of business as usual uh, situation. Of course, it won't. But any kind of uh, peace deal or ceasefire, or whatever you call it, on which there's going to be a Zelensky signature immediately, mm-hmm. uh, that will be, again, talking about engagement in a different way. Not all sanctions will go. It's very clear. But look at the uh, interviews of the Georgian, uh, sorry, but look at the interviews of the German captains of industry, Bas mm-hmm. and Volkswagen and whatever. They all kind of hint at at this idea that once there's some kind of lull in the fighting, once fighting is frozen, well, you know, we still have to do this and that, blah, 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 blah. And uh, secondly, this peace deal, for for, for lack of a better term, will also be, uh, will, will kind of light a green light for China, India, Brazil to do more business with Moscow. Now we see the the attitudes of uh, well, especially New Delhi and and Beijing, yeah. and uh, this means that okay, Russia is not going to get you know a lot of iPhones from from China. We understand that, but it's going to get a lot of Xiaomi uh, uh, um, smartphones and probably Chinese trains and 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 whatever Indian pharmaceuticals. Um, I'm sure that. Any kind of uh, agreement, if even even if tentative with Zelensky, will be very massively used by Russia to bust the sanctions, mm-hmm. and they're going to have a lot of willing accomplices. Putin himself, yes, is going to be in a bit of a freeze, but believe me, I'm, I'm sure that Narendra Modi will have no problem meeting Putin, and quite a few other leaders too. What we have definitely is a willing, by now willing, or, or actually, uh, uh, what we have by now is a willing a reorientation of Russia by Putin away from the West. And actually, he has no, not, not a lot of choice. And of course, I see a lot of problems with that too, because for example, if, if let, us, let us imagine Putin wants to buy Brazilian Embraer airplanes, I think half of them are kind of assembled from Western spare parts. Of course, uh, yeah. <laughs> you're going to have a lot of this um, constant toing and froing back and forth regarding sanctions and what is right and what is wrong. And we know that if Siemens sent turbines to the Crimea after 2014, you cannot rely on a lot of business and, frankly speaking, l- looking from Vilnius on a lot of European business. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think you're, I suspect you're probably right about the push in the European Union to go back to business as usual as soon as possible. And I certainly hope that the three of us and others will use our collective megaphones to push back on that as loudly and as forcefully as possible. David, you want to jump in? Yeah, look, I, I, I think it's, it's natural instinct of diplomats to look for a diplomatic solution to crises like this. I think we have to abandon that approach. Mm-hmm. I think we have to look at this as an opportunity, thanks to the Ukrainians. Let's be crystal clear, the Ukrainians would get all the credit and and, and, uh, uh, responsibility for this, to deal Putin a serious and possibly even a fatal blow. Mm -hmm. I think we have to view this as an opportunity, not just to deal Putin and Putinism a fatal blow, but to deal authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. serious blow because as, as Kosti was just saying, others are going to watch our response to this, how sustained we can keep this effort. And instead of trying to figure out a way out, we shouldn't be talking about off ramps. We shouldn't be talking about exits. We shouldn't be talking about face saving ways for Putin. 
This is his problem that he created. It's his problem to find those ways if he chooses to do so. We should view this as an opportunity to deliver a serious, if not fatal, blow to him, in my view. No, David, from your lips to God's ears, I've been thinking the same thing. The more I watch this, I'm saying we can't be talking about, like you said, offerings. We got to be thinking about winning. Um, we have to be thinking about winning. And, 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 and winning is possible, again, thanks to the Ukrainians. Uh, and, and to a lesser extent, thanks to Western unity on this, we could win this. We could win this. I just wrote my column this week for the Atlantic Council looking at what is going on in Belarus. And it is absolutely remarkable. Um, the pushback in Belarus from ordinary, these are not your normal kind of Minsk intelligentsia, you know, uh, Belarusian patriots. These are railway workers and like you know, IT that who are disrupting the railways, sabotaging the railways. 50 of them have been arrested so far for disrupting the railways. You have the cyber partisans, these hackers that are attacking the, 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 the railway system and denying the Russians few food and fuel. You have the um, Belaru ordinary Belarusians joining journalists and IT specialists, joining these battalions to fight in Ukraine on the Belarusian side. And in this sense, this war has come, become almost like the Spanish Civil War. It's like in the early 20th century, all of the ideologies of early 20th century Europe were fighting it out in the Spanish Civil War. Ukraine is like the Spanish Civil War this way. The ideologies of the former Soviet space, those who are on the side of Western democracy and those who are on the side of Putin's authoritarian kleptocracy are fighting each other in Ukraine. And we're, I see an opportunity to win here. It's not just Belarusians. Georgians are going there to fight. Um, so we're, so I think there is a real opportunity to really change the game here uh, completely. Costa, you want to jump in? I know Costa, you wanted to jump in too, but just real quick, but apologies, Costa. Uh, Brian, just to follow through on your point, these leaders, and by these leaders, I mean Lukashenko and Putin in particular in this case, are only as good as they have people to carry out their orders. Steve Began and I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs almost two weeks ago now, urging a more concerted policy of encouraging defections. If mm -hmm. Putin does not have the foot soldiers to carry out his orders in his campaign, if Russian diplomats did the decent and honorable thing and resigned from their positions, Putin then becomes an emperor with no clothes. Right. And, and so I think it's really important that we do recognize those who are taking the brave position, standing up to these leaders at enormous risk. Um, but encourage more to do so. Sorry, Costa. Go ahead, Costa. Yeah, I mean, what I wanted to say is that um, first and foremost, all, well, Spanish Civil War is you now turned a bit sour when essentially the Republican government was taken over by the by, by, by the Stalinists. So, well, I hope this will not happen here. And the good and the bad. No, no, yeah, the the, the, the analogy has limits. I mean, <laughs> and and secondly, and secondly, what I want to say is, of course. I feel certain optimism looking from my country, from Lithuania, at the situation because one sees that, of course, the Baltic states, most of Central Europe, and first and foremost of all, of course, Poland, plus the United Kingdom, are very much leading the charge here and not letting this all the Ukrainian issues drop. And I have to say that Brexit or not, but uh, the, the British government showed quite a significant yep. leadership, global leadership skills, uh, skill. But uh, I think that uh, with regard to encouraging defections and doing things to kind of split uh, the Putin regime, I think that's right. Uh, the question is, I mean, with every day of these new reports of massacres, uh, I mean, how many people are willing to, to resign? We do not see a lot of it. Frankly, I, when I looked up resignations in the Russian foreign ministry, I found only one relatively credible report mm -hmm. of a third secretary in Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, resigning early in the first three days. And the rest of these uh, people, and Russia has 4,500 diplomats, 4,500 diplomats. Uh, none of them did anything so far. And basically, they are working to, towards, towards their own Nuremberg, which yeah. probably, alas, will not happen because Russia possesses nuclear weapons and you won't be able to drag them somewhere. But I think that uh, regarding this war, uh, an important thing is to either, and you're right, defeat Putin in such a way that this defeat will be visible. And humiliating. 
and uncontestable to everyone, including the bunch in Moscow. Or you have to wait until Putin exits the scene, because of course, it's his personal project. And I don't think that, with all my due disrespect to the rest of the crew in Moscow, uh, they really wanted to be enmeshed in this horrible conflict. All they wanted their daughters in Oxford, they wanted their penthouses in Belgravia, they wanted their uh, sort of yachts at Portofino. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't sign up to that, but because Putin, and we discussed it many times on this yes. podcast, because Putin's gov government, government and governance system is pretty simple. It's run on corruption and fear, like the old sort of advertising for Vidal Sassoon Shampoo, all two in one. Uh, <laughs> you have a kind of... Uh, uh, a situation is, it's very simple, but because of that, it's reliable. Mm -hmm. And I think that you have to work towards basically breaking up this reliability. And mm -hmm. so far, we haven't seen enough of critical voices from Moscow, enough of defections, uh, actually very few of them, and even the topmost defector, Anatoly Chubais, the mm -hmm. father of privatization. He went out in such a strange fashion that... My suspicion is that he's probably there in the West to play a mediator, a go-between, in case things really, really go bananas. That that, cro that thought crossed my mind as well, having known Mr. Chubais since, yeah. since the 90s. Um, Kostya, I want – and speaking of global leadership and speaking of the country that you are in, uh, I can't help but give a giant shout-out to Lithuania right now. Um, the first country in Europe to 100 percent be off Russian energy. If Lithuania can do it, so can Germany, right? And Lithuania, again, it's, it's showing us the way with its moral clarity and its its commitment, and I think it, it deserves a lot of credit. And that kind of segues to the last little bit I want to talk about before we shift into potential accountability for Putin, but things we can do in the West to win this, not just to get an acceptable settlement, but to win. And Lithuania is one of the one of the countries that's doing this. And this has kind of two two points here, right? On one hand, how much more can we escalate sanctions? How much farther can we go? Now, we obviously the energy sanctions from Europe would be huge. Um, and I'm not just talking about coal. We got to be talking about hydrocarbons. And again, Lithuania is leading the way on this. The United States just ramped up the sanctions again uh, this week, full blocking sanctions of Sperbank, something I've been calling for for years. Um, it, it, it took a, a, you know, something that looks like a genocide to get us to this point, but thank God we're there. Um, so that's one side. The other side is moving. how much farther can we move the needle on military aid? Um, and I'm having trouble wrapping my head around this. It's, are we giving the Ukrainians what they need? Um, the Pentagon says there's this gap between what they can use right away and what we can deliver right away. Um, David, how do you how do you look at these two things? This, because what we can do are the sanctions and the military aid. Sanctions, now really the ball is at the European court. Uh, the United States, as you know, did not sanction uh, Russian energy and coal, they banned the import of it to mm -hmm. give the Europeans leeway in order to take action on their own. And uh, so the Europeans, I think, absolutely have to move in this direction. It is frankly unconscionable that they won't endure some hardship if it comes to higher gas prices or uh, heating, whatever the case may be, as Ukrainians are dying and suffering every single day. So it seems to me the Europeans absolutely have to move in this direction. I think it was uh, Borrell yesterday or the day before who said that the EU, since the invasion, has provided $36 billion in revenue to Russia in, in exchange for energy deliveries um, and has provided about a billion dollars in assistance to Ukraine. Uh, Borrell himself is acknowledging how absurd right. this situation is. And, and so I think we absolutely have to uh, impose every single sanction. I think we should uh, sanction every single Russian diplomat unless he or she renounces uh, this, this, this invasion. I don't understand why Ambassador Antonov still enjoys life in Washington, mm -hmm. uh, roaming around. He should be back in Moscow, in my view. I don't really get why we maintain diplomatic relations with Russia. Um, and, and, and so it seems to me that there are steps that we can and should be taking. Um, military assistance, absolutely, we need to ramp this up. Ukrainians are the ones doing the fighting. All they're asking for are the means to defend themselves. The least we can do, I would argue, is to provide those means and to do it without any public bickering or disagreements mm -hmm. as we saw play out over the MiG fighters 
um, S300 should be delivered. Mm -hmm. We should not be holding back. We should be providing everything the Ukrainians need, in my view. I mean, a big shout out to the Czechs, too. I saw this week they are delivering tanks uh, to, 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 to the Ukrainians. Kostya, your thoughts before we move into the second half? Um, actually, to add up to your uh, uh, rundown of uh, what Lithuania managed to achieve, and I think uh, it was the first country to expel, to order the Russian ambassador to leave and mm. to decrease, to downgrade diplomatic relations to the level of chargé d'affaires. Uh, and I think that everything that David said was right. I want to highlight one important thing of which I know a bit because of my uh, journalistic and private circumstances. Uh, Ukraine has an abundance of trained pilots, fighter pilots. Mm -hmm. um, it had uh, a very high number of uh, flight schools in the Soviet Union. Some of them closed during the independence, but some of them remained. And uh, quite a few Ukrainian pilots are actually flying commercial, and uh, they will be ready, as far as I know, to go back uh, into the cockpit. So supplying planes is very much, uh, I think, uh, a, a good proposition, because we have people to fly these planes. Uh, it's quite a lot of them. And to add to what um, uh, David said, uh, an important thing not to be forgotten is extremely quick and massive investment in new ways of delivering information to Russia. Mm. I, we're talking about the Elon Musk scope of technological uh, invention and innovation, uh, but definitely you can beam internet into Russian homes eventually without any interference of the Russian state. And I know that there is a problem there. We discussed public opinion. The issue is, not whether you have access to information. First issue is always whether you want to have access to information. But I think that once you have a proposition, once you have an offer, maybe quite a few people will, will have second thoughts, especially if this war drags on. You can't live in a, in a state of permanent hysteria. And this hysteria will start to wear off eventually. And you have to be ready by that time to offer an alternative, mm -hmm. offer another picture to the Russians. So I would say that people are thinking about kind of all sorts of old ways, like even going back to shortwave radio. But I think that you should invest in innovation in that. Uh, and I'm talking about, first and foremost of all, delivery yeah. uh, of uh, information. <laughs> I'm certain, and I know, I know a lot of these people, there's an abundance of people that are ready to launch new TV stations, new portals, new whatever to get uh, information, to get another type of opinion to the Russian people. So I think this is this should not be forgotten. Yeah, no, and actually credit where credit is due to the administration, and actually to the journalist Tim Weiner, uh, the author of the great book, The Folly and the Glory, um, which looks at Russian-American political warfare. He said that the, the Biden administration is waging the most effective form of political warfare against Russia that we've seen since the early days of the Cold War. And I think he, I think, I think he is right. And I don't think the administration is getting enough credit for how effectively they've been using every tool in the toolbox to wage political war against Russia. And on that note, I guess it's a good way to shift gears because I'm watching the clock. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at whether Putin and others in his chain of command can ever be held accountable for their apparent war crimes in Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Dallas, Texas is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of former President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked in Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. And joining me from across the Atlantic in the wonderful city of Lithuania is my old friend Konstantin Egert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and former director of the BBC Russian Service. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and tune in. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating 
rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Я хочу розказати вам про наші 13 днів міцної війни, яку ми не розпочинали і не хотіли. Всі прокинулись, ми, діти, всі ми, живі люди, вся Україна. So US President Joe Biden has said that Vladimir Putin should be put on trial for war crimes, and this is no longer seen as a fringe position. But it would be an unprecedented move. No leader of a permanent member of the UN Security Council has ever been indicted for war crimes. And while neither Russia, Ukraine, nor the United States is a signatory to the Rome Statute, which created the International Criminal Court, Ukraine has given the court jurisdiction over war crimes committed on its territory from 2014 to the present, so the ICC does have jurisdiction. Ukraine has also opened up its own war crimes case against Russia. Nevertheless, it is hard to imagine Putin in the dock in any scenario short of regime change in Russia. Now, I'm planning to actually do a whole podcast on this on these questions with former war crimes prosecutors, hopefully next week, but certainly in the coming weeks. But it's a topic I did want to, we can't avoid at the moment, and I want to just tease it uh, with us here today. David, how do you see the issue of accountability going forward? I think it's critically important because if you don't have accountability, then other leaders, not just Putin, will reach the conclusion they can get away with this. And even if, if you, as you said, Brian, that Putin may not be sitting in the dark one day, um, it is important that there be a warrant for his arrest mm -hmm. so that he knows if wherever he, whenever he leaves Russia, he could be subject to apprehension by authorities. And, and so it's, it's, I think, incredibly important. Just because we're not party to the ICC doesn't mean we can't support the process. As you said, Ukraine has opened up the door for the ICC to conduct its investigation. There, there could be a special tribunal uh, opened as well to pursue. Although that would matter. require a Security Council vote, it would require a Security Council. But there, look, these are extraordinary times, and I think countries have to resort to extraordinary measures. And I think if you could get enough of the General Assembly, for mm -hmm. example, behind a resolution in support of this. Let Russia pose a special tribunal that investigates Russia for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, I, I, I do think that these issues are incredibly important. And whatever the mechanism is, it's important. I don't mean to minimize it. Um, we have to stand for justice and accountability for what has happened to the Ukrainian nation. Having worked in government, David, how likely do you think it is that we will see an indictment? I've never, I'm not talking about apprehending Putin and putting me in the dock, but an indictment. How, how likely do you think that is? I actually think it's possible. I mean, so do I. I, 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 none of us has to be a lawyer or a war crimes expert to see that war crimes are being committed <laughs> and to listen to the rhetoric coming out of Moscow that reflects that these are orders coming from Putin. And so I actually do think an indictment is likely. And and, and so I, I think that is likely. I, I think the, the, the outstanding issue would be his actual arrest and detention and sitting in the dock, as you said. That, I think, is less likely. But again, I, I'd be very happy if he were uncomfortable traveling anywhere outside of Russia. Yeah, no, I'm actually thinking we're not just talking about war crimes, but we can actually be moving towards the G word here. And we're talking about genocide and crimes against humanity. There was an article in RIA Novosti, which is, which is a Russian state media outlet this week, arguing for the destruction of the Ukrainian nation. Um, that is a call to for, for genocide from a government-run government media outlet. Um, Kostya, how do you see this? Because one thing I'm concerned about is that Russia has said that if there is a war crimes tribunal against Russia, then Russia is going to have a war crimes tribunal against Ukrainians. And in this sense, I'm thinking about those poor tens of thousands of Ukrainians who are in filtration camps or have been taken to Russia. So how do you see this playing out from the Russian side? Well, I think that they will retaliate. And I think uh, they are going to put probably some Ukrainian servicemen that they captured on trial, accusing them all sorts of things. I'm, I'm, I'm certain that they will uh, do something very reciprocal because this, uh, uh, this reciprocity, this reciprocal attitude is uh, very much in the genes, in the gene mm. genome of, you know, of, uh, um, well, whatever passes for Russian diplomacy and Russian politics today. <laughs> uh, but I think that uh, regarding uh, the G word, I mean, uh, let me put it like that. What I read in the last week 
on state resources really smacks. And I know that these kind of lazy comparisons with uh, Stalin and Hitler are usually sort of uh, disparaged. But you're really, really becoming very close to, you know, the, the, the opinion pieces uh, yeah. in Sturma in, I don't know, 1937 or something like that. Yeah. And uh, this, of course, feeds into this narrative of, uh, of, of genocide. Uh, of course, we are not specialists on that. I am definitely not one. But uh, it's for the real experts to decide whether you can qualify it like that. But again... It's uh, with regard to war crimes. I mean, you don't have to be an expert to to figure out that they were committed. And I suppose that there's one thing we forgot in this kind of uh, the, the last six weeks, nearly seven probably now. Uh, and that is the trial that was going on for years in the Netherlands. Mm. Uh, that is a trial MH17, uh, of, you mean. of four people yeah, accused of downing the Malaysian airline, MH17 flight. Uh, over Donbass in July 2014. Uh, the, uh, the court has to decide on the verdict before the end of this year. And I wonder if this could also, and I think, and you probably remember that the Russian agents tried to hack the, uh, the, the, the servers of uh, the court and, and they really, really tried to put out mm-hmm. a lot of fake versions there. Uh, they, they were, before the war, they were concerned about this, uh, this particular trial. Why? I suppose, and I've spoken to a couple of Dutch people uh, uh, who are in the know, at least they're in the know about their own judicial system. Uh, and they said that it's quite likely that although the four people on trial are essentially just uh, pawns in this game, but uh, the court will have to explain how these people could actually acquire a modern or relatively modern a book. Uh, air defense uh, surface air missile and fire it. So I think that maybe we will have by the end of this year some kind of opinion of the court on the complicity mm. of uh, Putin and Shoigu and the rest of them in what happened. Maybe, I'm not saying that we will, but maybe because in the end one has to explain uh, these people are not just, I don't know, killing someone's dog. It's something completely different in, in scope and magnitude. Largest Dutch loss of life in a single event since the Second World War. Yes, exactly. So, uh, yes, is the bombing of Rotterdam or something like that. Yeah. I suppose that you have a very interesting, what seemed to be like a side event that may actually move Large, the yeah. center stage, including in the European Union, where people tend to start forgetting about uh, global politics once, for example, the heating season starts. So uh, I think it's it's something they wanted to add to our conversation. We shouldn't forget forget about that. That was a first really well definable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. crime uh, in this whole saga, sad saga, tragic saga, criminal saga that started in 2014. 2014, yeah. No, and actually we're bumping up against the end, but I just did want to mention one more thing before we go and get David's thoughts on it is that, um, I mean, we're not just talking about Putin here. Um, Zelensky, in a speech to the Security Council, noted that uh, Foreign Minister Ribbentrop was in the dock at Nuremberg. Right? Um, are we how 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 widespread are we? Are we talking about Lavrov, Shoigu? How far down the chain of command can we see this go? And he, I, I mean, we're we're not just talking about Putin. We could be talking about the entire Russian elite. I, mean, I think that's exactly right. I think we're talking about Ambassador ben, Benzia in, in New York at the UN. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're talking about the whole cast of characters. We're talking about the soldiers who are engaging in war crimes and crimes against humanity, who are pulling the triggers on people shooting them in the head after their hands and feet have been bound. Uh, So this could be a wide scale investigation, but it seems to me in order to be credible, in order to act as a deterrent against future kinds of abuses, you have to go after the top. Um, and, and so it does have to start with Putin, but also the, the people just below him, the ones who are following through on his orders. And, and so it seems to me that this is a very important part of the equation. Um, but one, one last thing, Brian, before we go, I did, I did want to just, you, you know, we've done this before, um, salute the Ukrainians who yes. are just showing absolute heroism and courage in this whole crisis. There was a survey released, uh, I think, earlier this week or late last week that showed 95% of Ukrainians who were surveyed feel that they will repel Russia's attack. It may not have happened immediately, 
but they think over time that they will prevail. And that sense of confidence, that sense of optimism amid such horror and tragedy and brutality, I think is, is just tremendously inspiring. And so uh, salute to, to the Ukrainians for everything they're doing, for what they're enduring uh, in, in Slava Ukraina. Yeah, Slava Ukraina. Yeah, again from your your uh, from your from your lips to God's ears, and that is all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining us from Dallas, Texas, has been the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of former U.S. President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David is the newly appointed Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Big congratulations on the new gig, David. And joining us from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, has been my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and the former director of the BBC Russia service. Thank you both for an enlightening discussion. And I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of Local Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. <laughs>